Good morning, good afternoon, and good night to you, and welcome to An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan. I hope you enjoy this small extract from one of our absolute classic episodes with Tommy Tiernan. To hear the full hour-long interview and the other half of the interview, this is an extra-length one, deep dive chats with hundreds of the greatest Irish people ever to have left our shores can all be found on premium Irishman Abroad over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. It will only take you a minute to sign up and for less than a fiver you'll gain access to absolutely everything we've ever made as well as our other series. You'll also be able to walk around with the confidence and spring in your step of someone who knows that they helped save this series, help this series survive and grow through these difficult times. Our chosen charity partner is Jigsaw.ie. Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity that works to provide young people back in Ireland with the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life. And since the pandemic, their jump in demand is 400%. They are under stress and strain. They are trying to provide these group services, these one-to-one services via their phone line, webinar and website functions i i mean it the difference they've made is massive i've seen the testimonies from the young people affected they're saving lives why not take two minutes to visit jigsaw.e see if they can help you or someone young in your life or maybe through a small donation you can help them that's jigsaw.ie the chosen charity partner of an irishman abroad that's the small talk now let's get down to business now your program What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a f***ing job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Rego! Thank you very much, everybody, for the lovely welcome. It is great to be here at the Vodafone Comedy Festival for this live recording of An Irishman Abroad. Will you please put your hands together and welcome to the stage our guest today, Tommy Tiernan, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy. Cheers, Jarvis. Thank you very much. Well... Thank you so much for doing this, Tommy. I've been trying to get you to do the podcast for about two years now. Yeah, and uh, and I've only said yes once. <laughs> yeah, and last night, it was two nights ago, you told me it was the audience being here that swung it. Yeah. Why is that? And what is it about being in front of an audience that makes you feel more comfortable? Uh, I have no interest, really, in trying to work that out. It would do me... It would do me no favours to unravel that, because uh, then I might spend more time on my own. I, I have no idea. I just it, it seemed like more crack than <laughs> just the two of us talking with no one listening. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, like I, honestly, I tried to get you on for the two years, and the first text that we exchanged, you said, "But sure, I'm not an Irishman abroad." Yes, a lot of your life—I mean, really, early years of your life—are spent in all 
kinds of different places around the globe and ultimately in, in Navan, which a lot of people regard as kind of a foreign country in many ways. Colm O'Rourke, former Meath footballer, has a great line about so many Dublin people have moved to Meath in the past couple of years. He says, uh, Navan people are like Palestinians in their own homeland. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you were like a blow-in, essentially, to Navin as a youngster. And I blew out again as <laughs> soon as the wind would take me. <laughs> I was 10 years in Navin. I'm 24 years in Galway. A good bit of that has been on the road as well. I was born in Donegal. So my first visual environment was wild mountains and crookedness, a small town up near Malin Head. So there was unpredictability in the landscape. And I moved from there to Africa, which was as just more unpredictability. Whatever you got used to in Donegal shattered in Africa. There were oh. no sheep. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's no sheep in Africa. Uh, we didn't live near a river or a mountain. Everybody was another colour. And I spent three years there. So when I was six, then I moved to London, which is the opposite <laughs> of Africa. Uh, so by the age of six, I'd been in three extremely different places. And then we eventually moved to Navan, and I was there for 10 years. And then I went to boarding school in Ballinasloe, when I was introduced to the west of Ireland. And there's something about the west that I am in love with, from Donegal to parts of West Cork. Wild wind, crooked landscape, the quality of light. There's something in the landscape of where I live, I live on the edge of Connemara, there is something about the landscape, the uncontrollability. You will never put manors on Connemara. <laughs> right? You'll put manors on a field in Kildare. You can get a field in Kildare and you will tell it what to do. You know, you're in charge of the field. You can't do the same in the west of Ireland. The field will tolerate you, but you won't order it. You'll never master it. No, and I am greatly refreshed by that. I love that. I'm inspired. I, I feel at home there and I love it. So Navin was a crucial part of my life from six to 16. I learned the power of the word in Navin. And Navin, it was a physically tough town, but it wasn't as physically tough as it was word strong. Navin was all about being able to use your voice to conquer other people. And it was verbally, yet to be dexterous and quick. And I learned that in Navan, and I learned to love a, I learned a love of the drawl in Navan. I learned to love of that part of Ireland which extends from, say, North Meath, Louth, Cavan, Monaghan, bits of East Leitrim, where they kind of talk like that. Maybe bits in Fermanagh now, ma, and there's there's writers who come from round there, and that's the way the Patrick Cavan, the Pat McCabe, Tom McIntyre, and they all walk like that, and and I love that. That's my, I'm fluent in that language, and I love it. Th I think that's what Navin did to me. It gave me an appreciation of that muscly language. That unpredictable thing that y you bring up there, I mean, it seems to come up again and again whenever people speak to you about, you know, what you do now. And it makes me wonder that, like, you're, the search for unpredictability and kind of chaos in some, in some ways... It made me wonder that, like, do you fear a boredom or does boredom come to you a little bit quicker than you feel it comes to other people? I, I'd probably be on the spectrum somewhere. Is that what you're trying to ask me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess, yeah. like, here, let's look at, like, 
what you've done to try and keep it interesting? Again, I wouldn't have any interest in defining something or, or maybe even realising too much with your head and trying to work yourself out like you're mm. a crossword. Mm. It's instinctively, you move towards things and you say, okay, well, I'm, you know, you get the physical inclination first and maybe you get the spirit, you're filled with the spirit to do it first and your head afterwards justifies it. But the initial thing is physical. You kind of, I want to do this. And then, you, you know, the secretary who lives between your ears uh, who has to keep track of everything <laughs> and notify people of what might be about to happen <laughs> needs to come up with reasons for what we want to tell the, the wife and children. Uh, but the initial thing is absolutely physical. So I'm uh, not too interested really in intellectually working it out. I, I, it serves no purpose other than, you know, trying to do forensics on your own life. And I, I, it's a waste of time, really. So when you look back on, because there's before all the DVDs, before the big runs in Vicar Street, before a global tour, before any of the storms that kind of surrounded you over the years, there was a young fella who's trying comedy and you can see him now and you've got, a, you've got that captured in history and you can look back on that. And I wonder how much do you connect with that guy and what do you think of that guy when you look back on I don't him? Look do back you bother? I don't look back at him. But like receiving a postcard uh, from a holiday you yourself went on addressed to yourself hmm. that's to reach you when you get home after your holiday. You kinda, what's the point in that? It's hard enough surviving now because I think stand-up is, uh, there are huge mood swings in it and it's natural. And to expect that there wouldn't be is, is kind of visionless. When you give so much of yourself to an audience in such a heartfelt way and there's such a energetic high of like a thousand people and this swell of laughter and you're the conductor, you know, you're like doing Fantasia. Mickey Mouse and the water's coming in and the brooms are dancing and it's just so engulfing and magnificent but you have to come back to yourself there has to be like I would say maybe not today or maybe not tomorrow but I'd say on Thursday or Friday Ed Sheeran will be so depressed because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's after making 160,000 people go this is the best night of my life but Ed is ordinary and human, so he can't live on that cloud. I'm sure other rock stars have said, well, I'd like to try and build a house on this cloud, but it's a house made of heroin. And, <laughs> it, you know, it, you can't live there. I mean, you can have good crack, but, uh, you know, you can't live in it. So in a much, much smaller way, the same thing happens for stand-up. Stand -up. So, you know, you have a great gig and it's wonderful. But at some stage, then it's kind of like the tide. The other way the, uh, the the sand is left after when the water goes back out, this, it's, it's a kind of a and the sand is exposed and, you know, a bit raw looking and vulnerable. And it's, it's the nature of the tide. So surviving now, dealing with now, trying to come up with material for now, trying to stay excited now trying to keep the adventure going, trying to be, when you're standing in front of a crowd, that you're saying, I'm the only reason for other people to watch it. You can 
When people do old material, okay, you may as well be reading out the death notices on Galway Bay FM. You know, here's something that I thought of a year ago. <laughs> and it's fine, and I've done it, and we all do it. But I think to make the moment compelling in a real way, in a way that shifts, makes the audience slightly uncomfortable and makes you slightly uncomfortable, because we're always looking for comfort, but when you get lifted out of that comfort zone and you're suddenly in this other space, that's when genuine community occurs. That's when a wonderful sense of transformation and belonging and being lifted by an experience happens. So it's hard enough dealing with now rather than looking back on myself well, years ago. I 100% appreciate that. And I guess we don't, I don't think about that enough because we are in this culture of why am I like this and is it a result of everything that's come before me? That I, I mean, I think I take that on board. But this show, to a large extent, is a collection of conversations with people about how they got to here. To some extent, we're going to have to talk a little bit about. Well, the hang things. on, Jarlath, you're in charge, so you decide. <laughs> <laughs> you Correct. Know, if Jarlath is controlling Jarlath, <laughs> then surely Jarlath can decide to let Jarlath do other things. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask you this question, Jarlath. Jarlath's decided to ask you this, right? right. Uh, First time if Jarlath knew everything that was going to happen, <laughs> then Jarlath could do the interview by himself. <laughs> I first saw you, and most people will have seen you, and the first time you came into our lives, into our living rooms, was through The Late Late Show and through these performances that made massive headlines and resulted in probably the first controversy that ever surrounded you. And it was a thing, and it, it, hap it has happened to you uh, for whatever reason. It's happened again over the years. Some people can say that that's down to other people rather than you. But from your own perspective, given that you've talked about how we need to protect stand-up as a bastion of where we can joke about the things that we're not meant to joke about, mm -hmm. how much of these storms that have surrounded you in the past do you think are down to the audience and the public not understanding that idea of jokes and how much of it is down to you? No, uh, I don't think that. I think the externals are almost irrelevant. What's interesting to me is the internal energy that created the external controversy. So the first one with the Late Late Show, which was a joke about Jesus coming down off the cross or something, I can't even remember what it was. That was just good-hearted mischief. That's all that was. So the externals of that to me were, I couldn't get offended by them. I couldn't be bothered by them. I couldn't, it couldn't touch me mm. because it was in a sense, nothing to do with me. There was jokes later on that I think came from a tempest. I think came from a kind of slightly more destructive, slightly angrier, slightly more reckless type of creativity and they definitely posed questions who the people who got offended were you know and I have huge regrets about about some stuff and I believe I think you pay the price for things I think that irrespective of what other people do to you other people might give you the hint but ultimately maybe karmic retribution exists and I absolutely would have suffered and I don't use that word lightly and I would have suffered myself and would have hated myself and gone through years of self-loathing because of a moment. And that's real. And I've, I've, 
that's been very difficult for me. But you serve the sentence. So you man up and you say, if this is what happens to me every time I do that thing, I'm going to get familiar with this prison. And you serve the sentence. And when I, you're I serving have. that sentence... And I'm not serving any sentences at the moment. I'm, right. I'm on parole. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've heard I you talking about serving the sentence and being awake in bed, looking at the ceiling and hating the fact of that moment and that decision that you made at that juncture. What are you thinking about when you're lying awake at night? Is it actual, like, I hate myself? Utterly. I hate, I, I, I it's, it's, it's self-loathing. That's what it is. If you're a novelist or a poet or a painter, you, you have time you know, to oversee what you produce. But when you're you're making stuff up on the spot and just talking, and when you're a, a whore to laughter, <laughs> sometimes you suck a big, bit of dick that you don't like. <laughs> uh, so uh, that, that analogy doesn't hold at all. But, uh, <laughs> it served its purpose momentarily. Uh, so, uh, so huge regrets and stuff like that, and, and huge self-loathing. But there's an awareness as well that those moments of neurosis, those moments of anxiety and self-hatred, they're deserved. So serve the sentence and be aware that all sentences will pass. So for one of the jokes that I told, which I have huge, huge regrets about. And it's funny, it's, it's funny to, to kind of throw this kind of narrative on a small part of your life or on a thing. But I served a six year sentence for it. And I, can, I know the moment it started and I, I can pinpoint exactly the moment that it ended and I can pinpoint exactly how it ended and I can look back on it now and say, yes, that has finished. Yeah, so it, you know, all sentences are temporary. I mean, when the first 10 minutes of this, we talk about how difficult it is to live now, it seems funny that your struggle through that six years is focusing on the past you're living in the past you're hating yourself for that moment Walt Whitman said I contain contradictions (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know sure I will say something and then I will disagree with it and then uh, man can have different opinions about the same thing at the same time so sure we Uh, are not just what we think exactly and like my wife says this to me all the time that we've kind of forgotten that we can make mistakes, that we can just say, well, yeah, I fucked up there. And uh, we're all kind of with our Facebook page and our Instagram and Twitter. There's a dialogue or an image that we're trying to create of ourselves that people, every single person doesn't want to go back on anything they said. Correct. That's my stance on that. I'm sure that to some people, you are Tommy Tiernan. He's a funny fucker. He's a funny fucker, that Tommy Tiernan. Goes a bit too far sometimes, but I tell you, he's a funny fucker. He'd fucking say anything. To some people, that is who you're going to be. Do you are you conscious of what they think of you, and what's your view of you? Not really. You know, sometimes you wouldn't be in the mood for people. And I remember one time I was uh, because in Ireland, like I would have a lot of people would know who I am, and and I'm very grateful for that in a sense. It's a very social thing, and people more often than just say, "How are you, Tommy?" As if I went to school with them or something. And it's it's really friendly. It's yeah. so warm-hearted and. How are you? And they go, and my, and my my kids are walking around with me, and they're, do you know that person? And I was there, no, I don't. But uh, so it's a very warm heart thing like that. But I remember I was driving down at a gig in Dingle, 
And I just, I was in foul form and I was lonely and miserable and I was on this car drive and I had to stop for petrol in a petrol station and I just didn't want the Tommy Tiernan's. I just wasn't in the humour for that crack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I was, it wasn't even a sunny day, but I put on the sunglasses and I pulled the hat down low and I just kind of filled the tank with my chin tucked into my chest as if I was about to rob the place. So I just <laughs> went in there, went into the garage paid for the petrol and your man says don't get lost on your way to dingle boy <laughs> so <laughs> so he knew exactly who I was and where I was going so it's you know I never feel trapped by anything really it is a relief to go to places where I'm actually in hindsight I get lonely in places where I'm not known right so, so why uh, then what is the urge to travel then for you because You've been to Moscow, you've been to Dubai, you've gone to... I would Australia. knock more crack, Jarth. I would knock more fun at a walking from here to Nace than I would from tour in Australia. I would enjoy so much to be able to do the Western way from Uttarard to Linan more than travelling across Canada. So it, when you say travel, like... Uh, unless the travel is transformative, unless something happens to you on the journey, then it's it's probably a useless journey. So I found with all these tours that you get to do, you're a lot of the time in cities where white people are shopping. Melbourne is the same in a sense as Montreal, as San Francisco, as Chicago, as it, when you're touring, because you're just when you're touring, it's hotel, airport, bookshop, shopping centre, theatre. So the urge to Travel is like I travel from my bedroom to the kitchen. <laughs> That's the journey. And I'm excited about what or depressed about what I might encounter on the way. There are some nice roads near where I live. I travel walking those, uh, you know. But I guess, I mean, like you can go to these places and play. Is that why you go? I mean, if you're going to knock more crack out of going to Nace, then... Sometimes, you know, um, sometimes, but it's not... Maybe the glamour has gone out of travel for me in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, the working travel. The glamour has gone. I did a European tour last year, which I loved. That was mind blowing because in every day we were in a different country. So you were going from Berlin to Amsterdam. Next day you were in Paris and, you know, Geneva. So that was very, very stimulating. And that was a great rush. But the vast majority of the travel is mundane and ordinary. And otherwise, I don't care an awful lot for it. And it wouldn't cost me a moment's thought if I was told I would never tour those places again. I wouldn't care. If you told me I was never going to visit the Aran Islands again, I'd be heartbroken. If you told me I was never going to w walk to Nace, <laughs> I'd probably deal with that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, is but, it but, 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 but do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain type of travel which is dead. Yeah. And I would, I'm not in a position to be able to say no to that, but I... Uh, I wouldn't be bothered if it never happened again. You bring up the Aran Islands and, you know, one of the people that we've had on the show recently was your good friend Hector and, you know, he spent some time out there and it was kind of a revelation to a lot of people that he essentially lived as a hermit out there for a portion of time. Is that what he said? That's, that was his version of events. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> What's your version of events of the time that you spent in the Aran Islands? I went to the Aran Islands to join a religious community. Uh, I visited them when I was 16 uh, 1985, 86, I think. I went out to join them when I was 18. And I loved it. Uh, I lasted a fortnight and they suggested I leave. <laughs> I guess uh, I was young and unorthodox and they were searching for something through rigorous 
prayer and uh, hard work, which uh, I was thinking recently about laziness, you know, and how what a gift it is and how it should be encouraged in people and in children. That a lot of the time it's it's our efforts that ruin us. It's when we try that we screw things up. Uh, didn't Jesus say, look at the... I can't remember everything that he said, but I think he said <laughs> something. <laughs> he said, look at the lilies in the, flower, uh, in the field and they neither toil nor something else but are arranged more beautifully than all of Solomon's clothes, you know. So I really believe in... Like monkeys do fuck all, really. You know what I mean? They yeah. just... A lot of... Ha- if you don't watch monkeys, there's a lot of hanging around just... <laughs> looking around they're so uh, you know when they do something they do it furiously Uh, (laughs) but a lot of the time doing fuck all you know and um, similarly though in Navin there's a lot of lads hanging around smoking cigarettes in the claw of their hand doing fuck all so were you trying too hard when you went to the Iron Islands is that what your problem was no but the thing is I have such a stubborn confidence now it's nothing to do with intellect because I can't justify it but I'm so fantastically lazy and I mean that in a wonderful way like you wouldn't believe the amount of effort was put in by tall people when I was a child like monster human beings adults of who ran the world as far as I was concerned parents and teachers to get me to work you would stand above me and you must work and I was just you know your mouth would say things I will work and you wouldn't. So I'm blessed in the sense that no matter how often I was told to work, I didn't. Bob Dylan came out line one time. He says, "He says I think I was born to the wrong parents." Mm. This notion of coming into the world fully formed—that try and all as your parents might do to change you—you you actually are who you are when you're conceived, and that's who you are. So. I'm grateful for the fact. I think there's wisdom in laziness. You know, I really yeah, do. I do. Like, I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm struggling with a uh, lazy it's, kid. It's hard to uh, earn a living out of yeah. it. It's, <laughs> there's real wisdom. Laziness is countercultural. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not an actual lazy person. What I mean is I can't work at something that I'm not interested in. Right. And I'm interested because in very little. Laziness is, <laughs> laziness is the last thing people would say about what you've given us and the performance that you provide is the last thing people would say is it was a bit of a lazy show from Tiernan there you put every ounce of your being into this thing that you do and as a result of that what you achieved in the last 20 years is more than any comedian Irish comedian has ever done right by your own admission it went mental for a while like things for you in this country were crazy I remember seeing the Mike Murphy interview with you and you told him that you blew every penny that you made during that period. Mm. Noel Gallagher says he can't remember Nebworth. He can't remember a lot of went on back when they were at their peak. What do you remember of it? Or is it a haze? I think, there, I think the, our evolvement, is that a word? As people, things that were called to go on in this life, you know, like inner changes... Sometimes we can get ourselves into positions where we're not allowed to follow those because of 
our financial obligations. Mm. So I have mortgages to pay, and that's you know one of the reasons why I work. I can't work at something I'm not interested in, so I couldn't work in an office. It just means I have to work harder at stand-up. Yeah, so I, f- I feel, I couldn't put a, a single definition on it, but I would say that I feel trapped financially now. I would say at the same time, I also feel as if I'm blessed in that I'm doing work that I love. I still feel stand-up as a magnificent adventure. So I feel ma- I feel many things, yeah. I don't, n- none of us are a sentence. You know, there's so many things going on, you know, but I do feel as if the adventure of stand-up for me is still, with the improvised work that I do, which I, I don't know if people know about, but I recently, there's a piano player called Keith Jarrett who improvises full-length shows, and I just started to believe that those, I was wondering, is that possible in stand-up? to not playing a game, not looking for audience suggestions, not kind of where'd you get them shoes type of improvisation, Mm -hmm. but of walking out in front of an audience and just going. There it is. That's just the beginning. To hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length Irish Man Abroad episodes and shows, join us on patreon.com forward slash Irish Man Abroad. Help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events. And for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicar Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe... Through a donation, you can help them.